Well, good morning. My name is Casey Cease, and I have the joy of serving as the pastor of Preaching and Vision here at Christ Community Church. And it's really, really exciting to um, be gathering with you this month as we are preparing the way to celebrate Easter on the 1st of April. And so I'm, I'm going through a, the end of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, um, as we're about to land the plane, as it were. Um, and on Easter, we will close out the series in the Gospel of Mark. Um, it's been quite a journey. The Gospel of Mark is the shortest of all of the four Gospel accounts in the Bible. And it's a quick, fast-paced one. But as you get to around chapter 14, it begins slowing down, and it begins focusing and intentionally going towards the culmination of events which leads to the death and ultimately the victorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so today we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. And in Mark chapter 15, we see Jesus on trial before Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was renowned for his severity, for his distaste for Jewish people. He was known for his cruelty. Um, He had early on in his reign brought in um, artifacts and sculptures and things like that that were to incite or elicit from the people there, emperor, emperor worship. And there was such an outcry by the Jewish people that he eventually relented from it because it was threatening his position of power because there was too much trouble. Pontius Pilate also had gone in and taken from the temple uh, treasury and taken money from that to build aqueducts, and so he would steal from the temple. And so him and the Jewish people did not have a warm relationship at all. They weren't close, they weren't tight, they weren't friends. Yet we see, interestingly enough, as the corruption of the Jewish leadership, the people of Israel were culminating this point trying to put Jesus to death. They bring him before the um, the Roman leader, Pontius Pilate, to have him put to death. And, and as, as we prepare to go into this passage, it's easy for us to look at the injustices done to Jesus. As we saw last week, there was an illegal trial um, at night by the Jewish leaders, and their charge against Jesus was blasphemy, meaning that he was inaccurately claiming to be God. And through his blasphemy, they then wanted to charge him and put him to death, although they did not have the power to do so. But we'll notice as we go to court today under Pontius Pilate is that the charge changes to a political charge, one that can be punished by death. Let's be honest. We all know how to act right. We know how to behave. We know how to put our best foot forward. We know how to project that everything is okay. If you think about it, look at social media, right? We give appearances that are often not accurate for our realities. Uh, we were joking yesterday, we were, we were celebrating at a wedding, and I was taking pictures of my wife. And to be fair, you know, she wasn't ready yet, but it's, it's typically a thing that we go through before I finally beg her to let me have a picture. She's like, stop it. She's putting up napkins and everything else. And we're there with friends from the church, and they, they saw this whole thing go down. They're like, do you do this too often? I was like, oh, I, I usually take about 15 photos, and then we have to look at it and make sure it's right and all that kind of stuff. You know, I mean, anybody else? No, just us. Just us, Steph. Just you and I. Everybody else is like one, one hit wonders. They take a shot, and they're like, that'll do. Boom, put it up there. No filter. Hashtag no filter, right? We... Online, we, we, we present the best, and then all of a sudden, I don't know about you, but you start scrolling through and be like, man, my life's a wreck compared to theirs. They eat the right foods, they wear the right clothes, they buy the right things, they do all the good things, their kids love them, their kids are well-behaved and instantly pose for pictures. 
They smile on command, right? And we see this awareness of things um, going well. Wouldn't it be funny to actually like, put together a social media of honesty, right? And you're like, no, it would not, right? Boo. We know how to act right. We know how to give right appearances. We know how to make everything look great. And, and I'm not sitting here in judgment. I, I do the same things. The couple that's struggling, but they put a happy selfie up there of them together. The woman who's so insecure, but she selfies all the time. We do that. We, we, we want to give appearances. And, and by and large, the Jewish people wanted to give appearances of having it all together, knowing what they're doing. But when their freedom and when their power is threatened, they lose control. And then when the Roman people's power is threatened, they lose control. And we've seen Jesus throughout the narratives of the Gospels coming and confronting sin, righting the wrong with the religious people bringing oppression on people, declaring the kingdom of God is at hand. Yet in this moment, at this trial, he remains silent. The silence and innocence of Jesus expose the selfishness and sinfulness of humanity. The silence and innocence of Jesus expose, it, it reveals, it lays bare our selfishness and sinfulness of humanity. It does so at this trial. It does so in our lives. There are moments where he speaks. There are moments where who he is, the truth of who he is, is declaration and proclamation enough to elicit a response. Every human being has to respond to Jesus. Who is Jesus? Because he made profound claims. He claims to be the Son of God. He claims to be God. He claims to be the way, the truth, and the life that no one comes to the Father yet through him. We must do something. But at this point, in this trial of accusation, it's not his words or correction that bring condemnation. It's his silence. So pick up with me in Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Literally what that is, that is for you to designate, is what Jesus responds. That's for you to determine. Whatever you say. He wasn't denying it, but he wasn't just outright saying like, heck yeah. Because by this point, the uncertainty and the unfairness had fled from the reality of who Jesus is, and it was now an overwhelming rejection. And at this point, Jesus remained silent beyond this. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. So the chief priests, trying to clean up a bit of their mess, of having a legal trial at night, in the morning, gathered together to, le- to render a legal verdict, to bring together their final plan of approach, and then they took Jesus up to Pontius Pilate. And as I said in my introduction, they transitioned from a religious or a theological charge of blasphemy because Pilate doesn't care if this guy is claiming to be God. 
And so they switch from a theological, religious argument to a political one. He says he's a king. That will get Rome's attention. If anyone else is declaring or claiming sovereignty over Rome or anyone else, that catches their attention, especially for Pilate, because Pilate had already had one uprising that they had to quell. And after that, he was at risk of losing his power. How do you respond when you're at risk of losing control or power? What does that do in you? He enjoyed a lot of power. He enjoyed a lot of control. And he could do a lot because he was charged by the Roman emperor to bring governance and control in this area. But this uprising of this Jewish man who was accused of many things caused a problem for Pilate. In John chapter 18, verse 31, we see Pilate saying to them at first, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But the Jews said to him, it is not law for us to put anyone to death. They're being very clear. Look, we will judge him, but we can't kill him legally. Their law required death for blasphemy. They had no power to do so. So they went to one of their enemies to align with him so that his power could be made real and made known so that they can execute Jesus. That's how desperate they were to put an end to this man. They wanted him to stop. And Pilate, part of the charges, if you want to know the charges, in Luke chapter 23, verse 2, it says, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. <laughs> the Jewish people did not want to give tribute to Caesar. That's how desperate they were to regain control. They were appealing to the one. He's saying we can't give tribute to Caesar, yet they're the ones that caused the uprising when Pilate was setting up ways for people to give tribute to Caesar. As we saw earlier in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus actually told them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. He was telling them, pay your taxes. Yet now they're so desperate to quell him, to silence him, to kill him, that they're bringing all sorts of accusations. The three primary accusations, the three main charges brought to Jesus are first, false teaching. They believed he was teaching false things about God. They didn't like what he was saying. I still remember teaching John chapter 6 at a smaller church. And this woman said under her breath, she says, not my Jesus. When he talked about it's his right to choose and to determine. She literally said, not my Jesus. Something from the scriptures she did not like, and it brought her enough. Like, I occasionally get like a Baptist groan from you guys. Hmm. Hmm. A couple of you haven't realized that we're not yet charismatic, and you're like, amen. And everybody looks at you like, what's wrong with that person? I don't mind. I actually enjoy it, but you don't laugh at me yet either. So you're like, huh? Some of you heard the same jokes for seven years, so I don't blame you. And you're like, yep, yeah, heard that one. It was funny six years ago. 
but false teaching. And we have to be careful for false teachers. There's a lot of false teaching out there. One of the prevalent false teaching that can quickly infiltrate our minds, hearts, and everything else, and that's the worst export that the United States has to third world countries, is the prosperity gospel. That false teaching is destructive. That false teaching states that the only way that you experience God's blessing is through health and wealth. That's a false gospel. Jesus Christ didn't die to make you wealthy. Jesus Christ died to make you holy. Sickness is a cause of, or a consequence ultimately of sin. Christ died for sin so that even though illness will ultimately lead us to physical death, it doesn't have final say over spiritual death. But many people use Jesus as some sort of sovereign slot machine. If you get the equation right and keep pulling on the stick long enough, eventually he'll give you what you need and want. And if you sow a seed, he'll bless you financially. Sometimes the greatest blessing God can give you is his emphatic no. And if you actually look at the the idea of prosperity throughout Scripture, there is a sense of abundance. But what Jesus tells us to ask for is our daily bread. Yet there's this this false gospel that basically is performance-based mentality that if we do right things, God will give us what we want. And that's a perversion of the gospel. It's not the true gospel. But they accused Jesus of false teaching. The second thing they encouraged him, or they, they accused him of, was encouraging political revolt. So they're accusing him of, of coming alongside and telling the Jewish people to revolt against the Roman Empire. Yet, throughout all of Jesus' teaching, there was never any statement to revolt against the Roman Empire. He was bucking up pretty frequently to the abuses and lack of justice within Judaism. But in order to get their attention, you understand they were lying against the one who was the truth so that they can put him to death and stop the truth. They were declaring false things, and they had been encouraging political revolt. In fact, we'll see that momentarily when they start screaming, crucify him. But the thing that they brought to bear that made it difficult for Pilate to get around is that they claimed that he said he was the king, which is treason. And this would get Pilate's attention, like we said, because of sedition. That's inciting riots and violence against the government. Pilate could not afford that. That threatened his control. That threatened his power. He could not risk that. And Pilate asked Jesus if he was the king of the Jews, and Jesus' literal answer, the designation is yours. And in fact, we see elsewhere that that he sent Jesus on to Herod Antipas, who was the governor for the Roman Empire over Galilee, where Jesus was from. And we see that Herod's like, I don't see anything here. Send him back to Pilate. But all that Jesus said was, the designation is yours to make. Which Put it back on Pilate. If you are the ruler, if you are the sovereign, then you decide. But after that, Jesus remained silent. And he offered no additional defense. In Isaiah 53, verse 7, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened his mouth. He, he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. As I said, Luke records another interrogation by Herod, and then 
they come back here to Pontius Pilate. Verse 6, now at the feast he used to release from them one prisoner for whom they asked. So Pilate would release one of their prisoners, one of the Jewish prisoners, he would release one at the feast. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, so in the last uprising of the Jewish people, there's one that actually had taken a life, not metaphorically, but literally has taken a life, called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? So we have Pontius Pilate now kind of jabbing at them. So should I release your king? Obviously, if Pontius Pilate took that claim seriously, if he really believed that Jesus was claiming to be the king over the Roman Empire, which Jesus hadn't denied because he's a king over all things, but if he had really believed that it was true, I doubt very seriously he would offer to release him. Yet still, he's at this point, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. So while Pontius Pilate was cruel, while Pontius Pilate was self-preserving, while Pontius Pilate was selfish, he was still discerning and aware. In another gospel account, it talks of his wife having a vision or a dream and coming to tell him this man is innocent. Yet by this point, preserving his own political power was more important than doing what was just. Yet he brought this up and there was an outcry. And the crowd, and, stirred up, and the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What, is, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Barabbas, guilty of murder during an insurrection, was a warrior against Rome. The Jewish desire, the Jewish belief was that their Messiah would be a warrior king that would overthrow the Roman Empire. So their declaration for Barabbas was not only a shot towards Christ, and not only their desire for victory, but their desire for power. Let's get the guy who actually did something to try to stop the Romans. Their will be done is what they were declaring. Let's stop this guy and let's start getting the stuff going again. Barabbas took matters in his own hands when he took a life and was a warrior savior. While Jesus, the suffering savior, the suffering servant, declared a kingdom in a way that went beyond just Roman dictatorship, beyond the Roman Empire, to a sovereign, everlasting, eternal kingdom. And in that kingdom and in that moment, Jesus stood silent while they began chanting, crucify him, crucify him. Crucify him. The very people that Christ came to save, the Jewish people, preferred their way. The Roman people in whom Christ came to rescue preferred their own way. Now, it's super easy for you and I to point a finger, but if we're honest, we prefer our own way as well. We'd rather present and live behind illusions 
and pretense, at least until our power is threatened. And so Pilate handed Jesus over to be prepared like a piece of meat for, prep, for, for crucifixion. The scourging is it's like a cat of nine tails. It is a cat of nine tails, a, a stick with leather, leather straps coming off, pieces of glass and bone and things like that tied to it, and utilized on the back throughout the whole body of the person to limit their control and use of their muscles so that they can then be a walking display of the power and sovereignty of the Roman Empire. Now, Jesus told them this was going to happen. Back in Mark chapter 10, verses 32, the second part through 34. And in taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Jesus knew what was coming, yet he marched ahead anyways. Jesus knew that he would be abandoned, yet he continued on. Jesus knew that the isolation and wrath that he would endure was far greater than he could even imagine, yet he persevered and pressed on. It wasn't that it was free from struggle. As we saw, he was sweating blood and asking the Father, Father, please, if you will, take this cup from me. Let it pass, but not my will be done, but yours. And the will of the Father was then to crush him, to have him a visualization and a display of the horrific nature of sin, the consequence of sin being laid bare, our desire for sovereignty, our desire for self-righteousness, our desire for power was laid bare on the person of Jesus. And so people often wonder, why such a, a brutal beating during that time? The Roman Empire did brutal things to show people the cost of what insurrection looks like, of what it looks like to go against the Roman Empire. Yet beyond that, the physical brutality that Jesus endured is merely an illustration for the horrific nature of our moral failures. It's an outward expression and exposure of the brokenness that our sin is and leads to. On one hand, we might say, Jesus, we love you. But do our actions yell, we love you or crucify him? The first thing we can take away is this, that, that we can probably relate to, is that the religious leaders did not want to lose power. They had learned how to remain powerful and keep what they wanted in order to maintain their kingdom agenda. They liked having control over the people. They preferred their way over God's way. They used God's word as a, as a tool, as a lever, rather than as a means to know, love, and obey God. They wanted to remain in power. They enjoyed representing the sovereign by fighting for sovereignty. They wanted the power. They wanted the control. 
In the faith, we still see that all the time. When people talk about, well, I have my free will, I have my free will, free will, my will. And I believe there was an extent of free will, but nothing created could ever be greater than the one who has created it. So a free will could never exceed that of the one who created the ones with free will. Free will by and of itself still has limitation. The only one who is absolutely free is God himself, and yet God will not deny his character. But we want that. We fight about it. And I believe to an extent there was free will in the garden as St. Augustine or Augustine, depends what part of the country you're from. Before the fall, before the eating of the apple, I believe there was freely functioning within the confines and limitations that God had put in place. But when they ate from the fruit, when they rebelled against God, something happened. The will of mankind fell. It became broken. And throughout Scripture, we see mankind's desire to try to repair it and put it back together again. But because of the sin of our first father and our first mother, Adam and Eve, because of their sin, we are then born into sin. And even if we believe we have a free will, it's a broken will. Therefore, in Romans chapter 8, it says, For the mindset upon the flesh is hostile towards God. We freely rebel against God. We freely desire our own way. We freely desire our own power. We do freely do those things. But unless God intervenes, unless God steps in and gives us a new heart, we will never willingly trust in Christ. We will rebel. We love our power. We love our sovereignty. We don't want to lose that power. People all the time want to take credit for their salvation. Well, I thought Jesus was foolish, but then I decided I'd give him a shot. He's the sovereign king of the universe who bore the wrath of God, yet the wrath of God did not have the final say. God the Father rose him from the dead. So death no longer had victory. And so you're telling me that your will is greater than that of the victorious sovereign king of the world. It's not that we don't make choices along the way. It doesn't mean that we don't freely sin. It doesn't mean that with God's help we don't love God. But man, you start talking about people's free will and their credit and their salvation, they get mad. Some of you right now, you're like, well, I like this guy until the free will talk. But part of it, let's ask, let's ask an honest question. Could it be that our culture and our political nature gives us a sense of entitlement that we have a right to vote for everything in our lives? And we buy into the illusion of self-control and self-management and self-power. And that bleeds into our theology rather than our theology bleeding into politics. We like being in control. We can, we can point at the religious leaders, but generation after generation, you get into an industry or a profession that doesn't end up turning out the way that it was, I mean, can you imagine being a first-year football player this past year in the NFL at some of these places that couldn't barely give away tickets? Years before, full stadiums, and then all of a sudden you get there and it's like there were more people at your college football game than at your NFL game? 
it wasn't like you expected. And to be fair, those people in religious power had done a lot of work and given their lives to their job, and that was completely threatened by the person of Jesus. Much of their work and much of their career was threatened by the person of Jesus. They did not want to lose power. Friends, I'm asking you, what is it that you believe you're in power of that you're unwilling to relinquish power to? In your walk with God, in your marriage, with your children. In what ways, if you're honest, if you're quiet and still, that you can acknowledge, I believe I'm God of this. You can be honest and admit and confess and change your direction. The second thing I think is clear is that the people did not want to lose identity. The people that were being raised to incite this riot, if you will, did not want to lose their identity. They may not love what the religious leaders did, but they had their unique identity as Jewish people, as people set apart, as people of the circumcision. They were not the same as the rest of the disgusting world around them. And this guy was coming in saying, no, the kingdom of God belongs first to the Jewish people, but also for non-Jewish people. People who are under control, even if it's bad control, oftentimes would prefer to remain under bad control than have to deal with something new. And at this point, it looked pretty dangerous to be on Jesus' side. And if you forget why, look at his disciples. They took off. So you got to hedge your bets at this point. It's better to remain an identity of, of this sub-power of people who will eventually, get, eventually have this warrior king that will come and overthrow the Roman Empire so that our people would then be in control again. They wanted a warrior over a suffering servant. They didn't want to engage or experience change. They were focused on the immediate rather than the long term. They were bought into the way of the world rather than the kingdom of God. Any, any struggle for you there? Heart idols capture and infiltrate in ways that we don't want to acknowledge, in ways that were costly, in ways that required the death of Christ so that we might be liberated. Yet as we live into these idolatrous, meaning false gods, giving our attention, our affection, our loyalties, as we lean into these things, we're being robbed of the joy we were created and intended to have in Christ, even in the midst of suffering. And so in the midst of your suffering, if you're experiencing a sense of alienation, I would say, who or what are you hoping in to rescue you from it? Who are you identifying with? I don't care how perfect of a politician we can come up with. That person was never intended to save you. Yet people are riding the roller coaster of politics, fretting over the election in 18, fretting over the election in 20. I want to tell you something that you may have forgotten, and I'm not trying to be condescending, just clear. Both parties have candidates who are human. Theology 101 all humans are sinners. So be careful. Be careful how you align your attention, your affections, your allegiance, your money. We'd rather outsource and abdicate 
solutions for education and for health, for welfare, for dealing with the poor and the widows and the orphans. Yet Christ had a solution. It's called his church. And we've given that over. Our identity. And hear me, I, I want to be very clear. And not just so that you'll like me a little better because I've stepped on a bunch of toes. I struggle with these things. I struggle with power. I struggle with identity. Like theologically, it's easy for me to get closed-minded about certain theological issues because I identify with a group of friends who believe the same thing. And it's easy to allow that desire and the desire for pleasure of people's approval of me to prevent me from wanting to ultimately please God. Like end times. If you've ever tried to talk with me about end times, I'm very slippery. Because people make tons of determinations about a person's theology based upon events that have not yet happened. And so I joke and I say I'm a pan-millennialist, meaning that it'll pan out in the end. That is funny, but you've heard that one before. So. And not that I don't think about end times, where our eschatology must be clear in the fact that Jesus is going to return. And when he returns, he will judge the living and the dead. And those of us who, who stand in opposition of Christ will be judged and condemned. And those who cling only in Christ will be saved and adopted and fulfilled and, and glorified with Christ. The third thing I want to show you here is that Pilate chose political ease over justice. The word here is not political. I'm not going to bash on political. I'm going to focus on ease. So ease or comfort over what's true. We can see that in Pilate, but I think we can see that in us. Pilate chose the path of least resistance. Pilate chose, look, I don't really have a dog in the hunt. This guy's not guilty, but I'd rather give them what they want than to have to deal with the consequences of standing up for what's right. Pilate, too, cared more about control than justice. He wanted to keep control of the people. He wanted to keep control of his rule. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent, but he cared more about his power and comfort than justice. One of the areas I see this play out in my life and in our community is that we haven't really had enough close, meaningful relationships where we can comfortably point out sin in a life-giving and transforming way. Now hear me. It's easier for people like me and people on staff to be target for that because we're, we're paid to be religious leaders. And so sometimes when people, you know, just kind of take pot shots or whatever, and it, it's been a while, so I'm not like, I'm not sitting here bitter. I've, I've worked through these things. But when people take pot shots at me, it's one of those things where I'm like, gosh, I've got three more better ones that are worse that would probably make you feel way better about yourself than that one. But if you want me to work on that one, that's easy. Right? As Martin Luther said, sin is nothing more than unbelief in the innermost being. So it's a heart issue. What heart idols, what things are we hoping and, and buying into that's going to elevate our sense of okayness? But at the same time, when we see people living overtly in sin, we haven't learned how to have that conversation. Why? Because of our divorce culture. 
you make me unhappy, if you make me mad, I'm divorcing, I'm leaving, I'm splitting, I'm breaking fellowship. Golly, what if we give each other enough grace to be wrong occasionally? We live in a one-strike-you're-out culture, don't we? With God, with our spouse, with our children, with our friends, with our community, with our church, with our preachers, with our worship leaders, with our politicians, At the same time, I was talking with a good friend yesterday, and we were talking about why, why haven't people confronted these certain things that, that are uh, overt. And, and first of all, when you confront, let me tell you this, you have to ask yourself, what's my motive? Am I trying to be right, or am I trying to be helpful? If you're just pointing it out to be right, then you're not the right one. Christ is. If you want to help people back to the right one and help them, come alongside of them and help them, and restore them. If we emphasize the wrong and never elevate the right, Jesus, we give people moralism or religion. If we never come alongside people, though, and point out what is sin, then we give them licentiousness and give them license to just come on and keep on living. There is a healthy balance. To confront literally just means to come face to face. To have meaningful relationships. As you've heard me say in marriage talks, conflict handled rightly leads to trust and intimacy. Even conflict originally handled wrongly, but then got back together and made right, builds trust and builds intimacy. Right? Because to forgive is to acknowledge you have been forgiven. So engaging in such a way. And this is a complex thing. Pilate was in a a situation here. Have you ever compromised and taken the path of least resistance? I have. Have you ever not confronted something that needed to be confronted because you were afraid of the outcome? I have. But as we look at this Denial of Jesus by his disciples and then by his own people and then by the Roman Empire. Rather than just be sad for our Savior, we must acknowledge the brokenness in us that resembles all of those sinful tendencies so that we can treasure his sacrifice and resurrection. We begin to see that and own that. We then begin to experience freedom. We we begin to experience what it means to have a new beginning. We begin to understand what it is to walk in freedom, not because we've made ourselves right, but because through Christ's rejection, death, resurrection, and return, we have been made right. And so by that power, we're then enabled to live rightly. And that is the hope. That is what is exposed as we walk along the story of Jesus. Our sin, our pride, our desire for power, our desire to be right, our resistance to conflict, our path of least resistance, 
Our unwillingness to own our failures, our unwillingness to say, I'm sorry, how can I make it right? Our willingness to acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy, which leads us then to joyful obedience and repentance in the Lord because understanding that he did what we could not do out of obedience to the Father for God's glory and for our enjoyment until we begin to press into the reality of Christ's vicious beating and his crucifixion and his burial and his resurrection until we begin to own those things and embrace those things as our only hope. We will fight for power. We will maintain our presence and our identity and we will take the path of least resistance. But when we begin to own and embrace our brokenness and our sin, as we compare ourselves before the silent and innocent Jesus, we see our selfishness and our sinfulness exposed so that we can see and treasure and Savior our, our Savior. That's the hope of Easter. That's what we're pressing towards. But until we embrace and enjoy the fact that we cannot earn God's favor, but he purchased it on our behalf, we will never know what it means to walk in freedom. We will never know what it means to have a true new beginning. But that new beginning doesn't have to wait until Easter. That new beginning can start today. There's a holy and perfect God who loves you, who's made you, who is mindful of you, who you have sinned against and rebelled against. And God would have been completely right and good to leave you up to your own resorts, to fall short and to die and be separated for eternity in hell. But God made a way through his only son, Jesus, who fulfilled the laws and the prophecies of the Old Testament, who died a death that you and I deserve on the cross, who was dead and buried and by God's power was raised from the dead, defeating sin, death, and Satan. So that if you trust alone in him, you're given true power. You're given a new identity. And you begin to experience real justice in view of his mercy. Let's pray.